Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver Newsroom. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. And for our discussion today, I want to invite you to join us for some of our public discussions. On April 25th, we're going to be talking about the future of banking and finance. On April 29th, on navigating Canada's LNG opportunities. And on May 8th, finding the best price and buyer for your business. Details on all of these events are at BIV.com slash events. Now, a few weeks back, the yield curve at the U.S. Treasury on bonds inverted, inverted for the first time in nearly a decade. A 10-year bonds yield was slightly below that of a three-month bill. Now, this is a very rare occurrence, and economists consider this bond yield inversion as a, possibly a, a reliable predictor for an economic slowdown, perhaps a recession. Bond yields, of course, are proxies for growth. And if you expect less growth down the road than you expect imminently, well, anyway, it's all there to be deciphered in the yield. My guest today is a leading economist in this country who has written extensively on this yellow alert for the economy. Eric Lasselle is the chief economist for RBC Global Asset Management, and he joins me from Toronto. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Help, help me understand, first of all, why this is happening now. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've already uh, hit the nail on the head in terms of the sense that when longer term bond yields go below shorter term ones, that is often saying something about expectations of less growth and expectations that central banks might have to cut rates. And so all of that fits very neatly into what's happening right now, which is at the global level, at the US level, I should add at the Canadian level as well, we have seen economic growth broadly slowing for more than a year. It peaked out in late 2017 and has been slowing ever since. Uh, and we've recently seen central banks pivot and say, you know what, possibly we've hit the peak policy rate that we need to achieve here. They could yet be proven wrong and there could yet be deviations away from that. But at present, the thinking is, gosh, you know, that might be it for central bank tightening. And those two developments together do, of course, speak to slowing growth and, and perhaps peaking rates. And, and often uh, these sorts of things presage recession. And so it's all sort of fit together. I, I would emphasize that there are no guarantees that emerge from this. You know, it's, it's easy to pick up sound bites about the last six times the U.S. yield curve inverted. There was a recession you know, within, say, six months to two years thereafter. And that's true. Uh, however, let's appreciate that going further back, it wasn't quite always true. Uh, and equally, let's appreciate that the yield curve didn't invert all that much. And in fact, it's yeah. not even inverted right now. And so plenty of silver linings and blurring factors, I think. But there is still a basic feature, which is this seems to be a you know, pretty late point in the business cycle. And we can talk about that if that's of interest. But, but, but equally, it's one in which growth is slowing and central banks are signaling additional caution. Yeah, I, I want to carve into some of these details here as, as we get along in our conversation. But why is it, uh, why is a bond yield necessarily the signal in this case? Right. Well, I mean, I guess one answer would be it's, it doesn't have to be the only signal. Uh, you know, were we to suddenly start seeing unemployment rates going up and other things happening, that can also very much serve as recession signal. So there are other signals out there. It just happens to be the case that the bond market has been one of the more uh, reliable signals as it is. And again, I think a lot of it circles around to the idea that there's a quite a bit embedded into how a bond gets priced. Uh, and although it's very loose, we can say that loosely speaking, it's a proxy for growth expectations. It's a mm -hmm. proxy for central bank expectations. And you know, when the, the world and the market is expecting growth to slow and central banks to cut rates, that's usually not a, a great time. And certainly less growth doesn't 
equal recession. Uh, an extreme version of less growth equals a recession. But there can be psychological effects that build upon themselves too. And so when people suddenly feel a little bit more nervous about the future, sometimes they, they overreact and they can even create a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I wouldn't say that's absolutely happening now, but that, that's one way you, you end up in that recession. Yeah, because, because wasn't there a little bit of, a, of illogic this time around with the inversion of these curves? Well, I think you can you can criticize you know the, 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 any strong interpretation of, of this inversion in terms of guaranteeing a recession because I don't think it quite does that. And so, for instance, one admittedly technical criticism, but I think an important one is you know, normally there's a term premium in the bond market. Normally, you would expect to be enjoying a higher yield on a 10-year bond than on 10 consecutive one-year bonds. So you sure. get paid more for that, that latter instrument. And right now, that's not actually clearly true. I know that just sounds like I said, hey, the yield curve's inverted, but that's not quite what I'm saying. The point being that you know, the market might expect some central bank cuts, but normally you'd still be paid a little more money to hold that 10-year bond as opposed to the 10 one-year bonds. And because there's no term premium to cut to the chase, you can argue this curve needs to invert by more than it usually does to give the, the usual signal. And so you know, technically, you could say, gosh, well, that's very nice that we a couple basis points below zero on that curve. However, you might need to get 100 basis points below zero to give the same sort of signal that was once given. And so I think on a number of fronts, the signal's, again, blurrier than usual. Yeah. Does it necessarily mean no growth or does it just largely mean perhaps less growth? I think very much the, the latter. It, it is a statement of, of less growth, not no growth whatsoever. Similarly, uh, if you dig into what the market, the bond market is expecting for the central bank rate in the US or in Canada, as much as there are now rate cuts priced in, that is to say the market is assuming some rate cuts and that's bleeding into this story of, of yields that are lower a little bit further into the future, uh, it, it is not one in which markets are expecting yields to go back, or central bank rates rather, to go back to zero, which is what they did during the last recession and probably what they would do uh, whenever the next recession comes along. And so I wouldn't say this is the bond market guaranteeing recession. It's the bond market saying we expect things to be a, a little bit worse. Yeah. You've written, I think, that it's, uh, it's premature to panic. Why so? Well, I guess premature on a couple of fronts. We've talked briefly about the idea that this signal seems a little murkier than usual and maybe even a little weaker than usual for reasons to do with that term premium. I you know, inadequately explained, if I'm being honest, but nevertheless, with reasons to do with that term premium, but also the idea that the curve is barely inverted. In fact, it's since slightly uninverted, uh, and, and you know, often you need it to be inverted for some time before fully triggering. So we're not getting the, the full signal, uh, I think, from, from that perspective in particular. But the other angle that we haven't mentioned is that there's also a considerable lag. And so I've yeah. tended to view this as saying, well, there's, there's two ways of viewing this. One is simply that the yield curve is lying to us and we don't need to worry about recession at all. And that's possible. I wouldn't bet all my money on that, but that's possible. Uh, the other interpretation is maybe the yield curve is telling the truth. And that's, of course, somewhat more concerning. But even if it is, historically, it does take about a year uh, to fall into recession. Now, again, that varies. And sometimes it's six months and sometimes it's two years. But on average, it's a year. And so you know, even in that negative scenario, you're still talking about more growth. And we are still broadly seeing economic growth out there right now. And so I think it's, it's premature to talk about recession in a now context. Uh, it's not unreasonable to talk about the risk as we go out over the next year and beyond. But you know, even in our own analysis, we have it at a below 50% probability for any you know, one-year period going forward 
over mm. the next couple of years. Yeah, but uh, but by 2021, uh, there's a, there's perhaps a stronger sense of that. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong in this one. I mean, it is it, when we're trying to look for signals of um, of difficulties uh, ahead. I mean, a, a bond is is essentially almost like a um, a predictor of some sort. Do we have to? get much more data before we really understand whether we're heading into recession? And, and, and is some of that data forward-looking or, or is it just on the basis of economic performance in the last quarter? Right. Gee, that, that's a, a deep question and a really good one. And, and so to answer the first part, and my brain can handle two questions at once to answer the second <laughs> part thereafter. Uh, on the first part, I mean, the bond market is forward-looking. That's one of the beauties of it. It's an explicit look to the future. When you buy a 10-year bond, you are making a bet essentially about what the world will look like over the next 10 years. Uh, and, and, and so very much that is why we look to the bond market to predict the future. Uh, in terms of uh, you know, the extent to which just the current economic trend informs us, it's one of the guides. I mean, I can tell you as, as an economist and I suppose also as someone who works at an investment firm, and so perhaps we're even subtly influencing the level of those bond yields, we're also looking to the future using other tools. So a little bit of that is saying, gosh, growth has been slowing and all else equal momentum tends to stick around. And so maybe you'd assume a little bit less again just on that simple basis. But I will say further arguments for growth to slow from a, a U.S. perspective would be that fiscal stimulus delivered last year starts to fade and mm-hmm. protectionism starts to bite. And maybe in a Canadian context, we can say the oil sector isn't doing all that great and housing has slowed after a 15-year uh, bull market and there might be some competitiveness issues. So we can look to actual hard and fast uh, impulses, you might say, and we can map those onto growth. And I should say in both the U.S. and the Canadian, and I guess I should add on the global context, none of those negative impulses add up to recession by by themselves. Now, they argue for maybe muted growth by the standards of the last few years, but not an outright recession. I think the reason people talk recession, at least that risk, is in part just because when things start to slow, sometimes it gets awfully slippery and it gets hard to to, to sustain and people overreact as, as humans are wont to do. Uh, and some of it has to do with the idea that we can say the cycle, the business cycle does look fairly late. Uh, and it's a weird thing to claim because the, the definition of a late cycle is almost that things are looking really good. Unemployment rates are low, and indeed they are almost everywhere in the world right now. And factories are being used to a fairly full extent and growth has persisted for a decade. And every one of those things is a fabulous piece of, of news in and of itself. But it is also the case. And Referring back to that slippery context, it's also the case that when economies are as hot as they are and have gone as far as they are, they do tend to get a little slippery. It's hard to sustain once you've got that low unemployment rate. Wage pressures start to build and the quality of people outside the labor force diminishes so companies complain and and a number of things happen that make it harder just to keep muscling forward as much as everyone would like another decade of low unemployment rates. You you look at those unemployment rate charts and they kind of go down or they go up. There's not a lot of sideways happening. Yeah. I mean, it, as an economist, you also, I, I imagine, have to be a bit of a behavioral psychologist in all of this. Does, d- does the economy writ large at one point just reach this sense of resignation about, right. uh, you know, a fatalism about the, the end of an economic cycle and, and then it kind of just kind of collapses all at once? 
I mean, that, that's certainly possible. And so, for instance, when stocks were swooning in late 2018, and they certainly were right around the world, of course, they've since rebounded quite happily, but they, they fell very sharply at the end of last year. One of the questions was the extent to which this would damage confidence and, and affect the economy through that behavioral channel. And we saw a little bit of a, a dip in confidence, but actually it proved fairly resilient. And so I wouldn't say we're seeing that yet, but uh, I'll equally admit that when we think about that yield curve, I can talk till I'm blue in the face about how this particular inversion was short-lived and slight and distorted by the term premium and all these things that make it a little bit less worrying. Uh, but equally, if the market or, or the average person or the average business decides to glom onto that and conclude it's trouble, well, you know, trouble it will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so far, I would say we, we haven't necessarily seen that conclusion. But this is why economics is the dismal science. Forecasting <laughs> is awfully tough, not just on the basis of our models, but also on the basis of how humans behave. And as you and I both know, humans can be fickle in their behavior. Yeah, you you predicted thirteen of the last six uh, recessions. Yeah, um, things like that, yeah. or or the other way around. Um, I, I, what I wonder though is, uh, what do you think are the imperatives now uh, for policymakers, for central banks, uh, for governments, um, and for that matter, for the private sector uh, and investors, in order to essentially sustain this without falling into that resignation trap or fatalism trap. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, to begin with, I guess we should appreciate that there's, there's nothing automatic about recessions. I think the risk does sort of edge up over time, you might say, and so let's be wary of that. But as we speak right now, there's no concrete reason why growth needs to descend to zero whatsoever. There are a few headwinds in place, but they argue just for slightly muted growth as opposed to worse. So let's be practical about that. I think we should broadly applaud central banks for the pivot they have engaged in over the last few months. The rate of hiking was the order of the day, and at least at the moment, that no longer seems to be the case. I think that's the right pivot, given some of the economic deceleration that was occurring and some of the concerns the market was expressing as well. So central bankers are broadly doing their part. On the fiscal side, of course, you know, the fiscal response is always more muted and, and, and delayed and so on. But you know, at the global level, we can say we are seeing some governments deliver a bit more stimulus, acknowledging this deceleration. Germany's done a fair bit. Italy, admittedly, for, for somewhat populist reasons, has done some as well. Uh, you could argue Canada has a little bit. In fact, we were crunching the numbers yesterday, and objectively, Canada has a little bit of fiscal support uh, that's lending a helping hand as well. And so I guess that's part of the story, though you also are wary about doing too much stimulus when borrowing costs are higher than average and, and when you know the economy doesn't have too much slack left in it. In other words, not that many unemployed people to employ, which is often the goal of fiscal stimulus. But I think beyond that, again, just just being rational, not succumbing to emotions, both from a household perspective in terms of your saving and your spending and that sort of thing, but also for businesses in terms of recognizing the more likely scenario is still that the economy grows. And so there should still be some investment in, in the future and in capacity and ideally in productivity, which has been the thing that's really been quite disappointing on a global basis over the last decade. Do, does Canada have uh, particular um, priorities that need to uh, need to take hold here when you consider what other economies are doing around uh, around showing themselves up? I mean, we 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 were pretty resilient in two thousand eight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, how do we make ourselves resilient this time if something's going to happen? Right. I and mean, to begin with, I have to confess, my presumption is that Canada is going to be a little more fragile than the average country, or at least than the U.S., whenever, if 
uh, the next recession occurs simply because a, a big part of the resilience, well, part maybe to pat myself on the back would be related to a resilient financial sector and these sorts of things. But a big yeah. part uh, was ultimately that the housing market didn't didn't get cooked like it did in the U.S. And uh, yeah. so you have to acknowledge there's the risk of that this time around after such a, a long and, and heady run. So I think that's a vulnerability maybe Canada possesses that the U.S. doesn't. Uh, beyond that, it gets quite tricky and much, I'm sure, comes down to your political stripe and these sorts of things as, as well. Uh, I mean, diversification is key. And I must say one of the big success stories in Canada over the last decade has been an enormous growth in the tech sector. I think that's only beginning to be fully appreciated now, but that, that's been important. And that's good, too, because the service sector generally is just a more stable part of the economy than the goods sector. And so that in itself is building a, a little bit of a buffer. I'll confess I'm still a little concerned from a purely competitiveness perspective about Canada. It happens to be the case that the big trading partner of the U.S. did some tax cuts and has, has you know, yeah. driven down at least held down uh, wages, and it has engaged in deregulation and, of course, levied tariffs on us and these sorts of things. And uh, and so Canada may be a step or two behind from a competitiveness perspective versus the U.S. Certainly a tricky thing, though, in the sense that when you think of some of the things that have caused that loss of competitiveness, be it higher minimum wages or be it uh, environmental rules, many of those things have great societal benefit. You can argue maybe you're attractive or even worthwhile in an absolute sense. But if you're a business deciding where to put your next factory, Canada isn't looking as good as it was. And I think particularly on the on the regulatory side, it is proving quite hard to push through infrastructure projects. And in some cases, there's good reason for that. But I do think a, a good hard look needs to be made in that direction because we've seen foreign direct investment in Canada really dry up. And that's a bit of a concerning thing. It's kind of a statement about uh, whether Canada is indeed open for business. Yeah. When the finance minister was out here in Vancouver a few weeks ago, um, businesses were very much telling him exactly that. Look, it, we, we understand that perhaps you can't cut taxes uh, enormously, but you can really deal with the regulatory bind that we find our projects in, that slows them down, that makes it more difficult to get these projects, uh, you know, out out and running. It, as you see it here in the next year, uh, given that the government, ha- the federal government, has precious little wiggle room, it, it's running fairly substantial deficits. Uh, it, it doesn't want to, you know, make make us like a, a real, uh, you know, <laughs> death star around around these types of things. But is is there wiggle room, do you think, for the Canadian government to, to make some moves around competitiveness? Well, you know, I, I think there is some. Uh, I, I will confess uh, as, as much as I've, I've leveled some criticisms, I suppose. Let's equally acknowledge, I'd say there's been something of a pivot over the last uh, six months or so. And let's give credit where credit is due on a few fronts. And so federally, there has been accelerated depreciation for businesses brought in, which is yeah. a helpful thing, maybe even more useful than tax cuts, if, if less uh, glamorous. Uh, new NAFTA deal, granted some uncertainty whether that actually makes its way through U.S. Congress, but I would describe that as a, a, a win, at least within the confines uh, of what was, was realistic and what was, was practical. And yeah. Could have been uh, worse, sure, as they with, say. Yeah. With great controversy, I know the pipeline, quite a complicated issue, and ever more so now with a change in the Alberta government, but you can see at least intent uh, to aid the beleaguered oil sector via the the nationalization or purchase of that pipeline. And so I'm presuming there is a desire to get that done as well. So there has been a pivot back in a more business-friendly, competitive uh, direction. I think, though, a lot does revolve around regulation. There's still a great deal of blurriness with that that C-69 bill in particular. And Mm -hmm. uh, to what extent will it further impede activity? Or maybe it won't, uh, if you believe the government. And so uh, I think much rests on that. uh, And that is still wending its way through the legislative system. Eric, uh, great conversation. I really want to thank you today for uh, starting off in the the bond yield curve inversion and and taking us through the economy very well on this one. Thanks a lot for your time. My absolute pleasure. Thank you.
Eric Lassell is the Chief Economist for RBC Global Asset Management. He joined me from Toronto. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening to BIB today. We'll see you next time.